Hello, everyone, and welcome to this free episode of it's the free one. TF. It is indeed the free one. It's the Riley's remote mm. one. Uh, unusual. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Riley's coming at you from his small submersible on the way to find the wreckage. <laughs> yeah. Trying to I'm investigate actually, what really happened. I'm, I'm investigating yeah. the wreckage of the previous submersible that went to investigate the wreckage. <laughs> yeah. It's an old lady in the fly situation here. Um, you're down yeah, there yeah. with RFK Jr. and you're going to teach the controversy. You're going to find out what the deep state's been doing mm. to all these submersibles. James Cameron hates him. <laughs> but today we are going to be joined in the second half of the episode by Emiliano Molino, uh, who is a journalist and organizer with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, um, who has been investigating labor conditions on farms up and down the country and how oh, that farmers... That sounds like a laugh riot. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a, a laugh a minute. And how farmers have been taking advantage of the hostile environment and various dollar short day late uh, labor market fixes to further uh, abuse and immiserate uh, their employees. But because this is allegedly a comedy podcast, of course, we have to talk about the news first. Yeah, I love the news. Item number one, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, you remember him. Uh, yeah, has- briefly, vaguely. Yeah, has assembled a book of poetry, and look, you know, I would, I wouldn't say I fuck with him, Your Honor, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, and you know, you know me, I will only do Twitter review if it's really funny, if it's really good. And mm. after he announced that he was going to do this poetry with a stanza of his uh, favorite poem, "The Mask of Anarchy," you know the one, you know, "Rise Like Lions." Uh, shake off chains, ye are many, they are few, the, the Shelley Ooh, one. the one that makes me feel bad now, yes, that yeah, one, yes. Yeah, the one that gives you a kind of twinge of um, of what could have been and makes you wistful, that one. Yeah, well, that, yeah. the Professor of International Relations and Director for Center of Advanced International Studies uh, at the University of Exeter, Doug Stokes, decided to have something of a poetry battle uh, with Mr. Corvin and just... <laughs> And has taken uh, his pen to pay. He came in like like Eminem and Eight Mile, right? He came in <laughs> as the underdog. Uh, he was wearing the like sort of gray sweater. Nobody mm. thought that he was gonna like he was gonna rhyme this good. Yeah, he had his mom's spaghetti on his shirt. Yeah. yeah. So Doug Stokes has written in response to to this: "Frolic not with tyrants masked in their glow. You bask unasked. Utopian dreams in the state. No, sorry." Utopian dreams in state's cold hand, it's not the state, turn to nightmares on command. Is this the piece for which you stand? Buzz, buzz, buzz. Alice, you know, Alice do, you have, do, do you have any like rap air horns that we can add ooh, to that? I, yeah, you know burr, what? Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> yeah, I think I do. If you just bear with okay. me while I yes. scroll yeah, through. Yeah, it goes hard. Such it a goes- well-timed rap air horn. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, it goes hard. The gamer horns. It goes hard. Yeah, um, Perfect. Bar, yeah, bars, bars for days, man. It's it's very funny that uh, Corbin derangement syndrome has remained real among a certain subclass of professional Corbin yeah. derangement syndrome CDS uh, opinion <laughs> of a kind of um I'd say like professorial opinion haver who has not yet accepted that they've won and is so gets so mad he's writing his own poetry. 
this is the most opinion have a guy you've brought us yet is like uh, he's a professor of being like the guy at the institute of advanced guy studies at guy university uh, it, it's like it's a nothing and there's like all of those guys for some reason will never ever forgive corbin for trying to like make the country a slightly better place or engaging in any kind of sort of like artistic pursuit i i, I think a lot about the helen lewis thing where uh corbin said you know Every working class person has like a you know a novel or a symphony inside them, and she's like, "Don't encourage them, Jeremy." And yeah, the ultimate sort of like fruition of this was Corbin announcing a poetry anthology with Shelley and a bunch of people, the dumbest people in the country, assuming that he had written this himself uh, and going, "Oh, well, this guy is a terrible poet." <laughs> but I also just love that, like, how into the neoliberal '90s consensus must you be to? write some Hayekian poetry in response mm. to this. Utopian dreams in states called it. Basically, a poem about how, like, public choice economics is perfect. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it um, just, it, uh, it's just, it's so grim. Like, I, you know the tweet that's like, just got back from the centrist rally, everyone holding hands, singing, better things aren't possible. That's, you know, I'm used to that kind of shit, but like, to put it in verse... It just feels like mm. adding insult to injury. Well, you know what else? My name's can... Doug Stoke, and I'm here to say that, that means testing's the only way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what? You know what? You could. You, we could also yeah, talk right. about if you like about utopian dreams in the state's cold hand turned to nightmares on command. Is have any of you tried to have any water recently? If you live near the River Thames. Yeah, it tastes kind of like spicy. Yeah, well, I like it. Oh, spicy water. Well, it, it's about to get up quite a bit more expensive because Thames Water because flavored now. Thames Water and the other water companies are about to hike bills by forty percent to quote deal with the sewage and climate crisis. Um, which uh -huh. they... that seems like an interesting one to combine. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, or <Well>, crises. <laughs> We're about to have to like stealth renationalize again. Yes, yeah. again, another public utility. We're having to do some like minimum viable socialism. And it's really interesting that this news comes at the same time that they announce that they're going to make Diet Coke like illegal. Basically. Interesting, curious, mm. even. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, I, I have a I have a trillion dollar idea for Thames Water, the thing that's going to get them out of administration and back on top. And that is, you know how like uh, Transport for London used to be sort of like relatively uninspiring and stuff, but then they hit on the idea that you can sell people like gift shop stuff, like the little socks that look like the you know. The seats or whatever, or a little cuddly tube train. I think if Thames Water really lent into that and started selling a like water flavored vape, cuddly fatberg, fatberg flavored vape. There's your answer. Fatberg flavored Sp sponsored by me. So here's some. <laughs> I think a water flavored vape is the only appropriate flavor <laughs> to ensure that children who hate water will not get into nicotine. <laughs> I think you could you could you could maybe say this is a situation, especially with the Coke, the Diet Coke aspartame thing, where mm. uh, they ban our medicine so they can sell you their cures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the reason that this has all happened, right? It's the reason that it has such an unsustainable debt burden that now it can't pay, partly due to like you know rate rises and stuff, and all. No, not just that though, but also. They had the fact they're having have to taken pay. out so many student loans. Should have. <laughs> the fact, yeah. They, well, the Tem Thames Water went to go to media studies. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, that they have this unsustainable debt burden, partly because they had to pay so many fines for uh, for for dumping sewage. But the reason that they dumped all that sewage is that they after they went private, 
uh, Macquarie, which bought them for several years in the late Brown, uh, late uh, Blair Brown years, basically sold all the assets and then borrowed a huge amount of money to pay themselves dividends. So uh, the the regular kind of like hostile stuff that we're used to now, the corporate rating. Yeah, and so it just it just took a long time because that's a very hard infrastructure. It took a, it's we basically now know what happens when you stop maintaining water infrastructure is that it breaks after approximately fifteen years. Mm. <laughs> that's what that's what we know. <laughs> there's fifteen years in it. I sure hope we learn lessons from Matt. And well, there's been a you know it's been a test. This has been a study conducted by Harvard University. Thames Water will now be wound up. Thank you for your participation. <laughs> yeah. Go drink. You can yeah. just go back to how we used to do it, and you can hey, yeah. you could get some exciting nineteenth uh, century diseases again. Yeah, go down to the mill pond. Yeah, the fatberg was just a graduate student in a big costume. Has anyone considered that there is an easy solution to this, which is that we all drink from the puddle? Yeah, ah, yeah. that's a good idea. Going down to the puddle in the morning with a big ladle. Um, mm. to, yeah, to bring yeah. back some puddle water for my family. Or better, better yet, drink from the sewer. Yeah. Right, Ben, <laughs> it is 4am British time. Every one of you who's been issued with a long straw, <laughs> you'll proceed to the nearest manhole and drink. And if you don't drink, that means you're gay. That's right. That's why you call it the manhole. We've sent in the army to solve the sewer <laughs> crisis by just That's having right. Britain's hardest bastards. From- we, have, we have lined if up the Scots If you need to piss or shit, don't. <laughs> and they've all got the big curly straws and they're all standing around manholes drinking <laughs> all of the sewage. That's that's the way of the future, yeah. But so the, the, to finish off on this before we move on though, right? Nationalization at zero cost to te- to anyone is a very generous option, right? Because what it says is, okay, Macquarie, you got you successfully robbed the bank this much mm-hmm. and yeah. the and now we're going to stop the bank robbery, but you can keep what you took. You keep it. You got it fair and square. So, so it's yours. Operating by like supermarket sweep rules here. <laughs> yeah. It, while you own a public utility, anything you can strip out of it, you can keep. But then when the buzzer goes, it gets renationalized and built up again. So the yeah. next supermarket sweep, but it lasts 15 years. Well, you know who else, of course, ran, um, ran Thames Water is not just uh, uh, um, uh, Macquarie. It was a number of sovereign wealth funds of other countries. <laughs> Oh, huh. cool. Well, we wouldn't want this being run by government, of course, because that would be inefficient. It has to be run by, like, n- well, not even the Emirati government, but, like, or a, the Qatari government, but, like, uh, an office of the Qatari government, maybe with based here, even. And this is, this is ah, lip okay. shit to care about, but we are a laughing stock internationally, aren't we? We must just be. The, this idea that you can just, like, come and get, like, a British... Uh, public utility, run it at a profit, yeah. extract all the money from it, and fuck off again. Well, they look. They looked at Monopoly and they were like, oh, you can buy waterworks here mm. for really cheap. Why yeah. didn't we do that in real life? Yeah, perfect. And they sold it to a big, they sold it to a little metal dog. Yeah. <laughs> Oman owns all four train stations. And, and a top hat. The dog was wearing the top hat and they were just like, well... It was, it was a Qatari dog. Yeah. yeah, it was wearing a Dior belt. Um, <laughs> a, a couple, a couple more things. Oh, adorable. A couple more things as well. I have a startup to do that's going to be pretty quick. Um, I want to say check in on an old friend. Uh, talk about the London mayoral race and then do a startup. The old friend, of course, is Lordstown Motors. Um, oh, we remember them, the oh, false yeah. hope profiteers, the guys who are going to go to Ohio mm. and be like, "We're going to revitalize your economy by building the trucks here." Yeah, well, the stock was trading at about four hundred dollars when we first started making fun of it. It is now worth nothing. It is gone. It is out of business. It oh, is damn. filed for bankruptcy. 
The Brian Lordstown bankruptcy. Yep. <laughs> so that is, uh, and so this is another, I'm just going to ring the big we were right bell. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, the new CEO is named Edward Hightower, which is some Game of Thrones ass shit. <laughs> I-, I was thinking so like Stephen King villain. Oh, well, yeah, of yeah. course. Uh, the Edward in the Hightower um, told Reuters. Yeah, yeah. fucking yeah. Randall Flagg told Reuters. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's come from a reality where the Nazis won the war yeah. <laughs> in order to bring this country back from bankruptcy. Because uh, yeah. in that reality, this company did really well. Yeah. Uh, basically said that um, after uh, Foxconn failed to invest in them because the business was, was not ideal, uh, that they... Foxconn? Yeah. Isn't that like yep. from the, Metal Gear Solid? Uh, no, that's... <laughs> Foxconn's... It's a... It's a so, it's so the people who make the iPhones and all of the their workers nets. have to like, yeah, be contained yeah. by suicide nets because working yeah. there is so miserable. Uh, it's yeah. quite Metal Gear, but not in the way you're originally. Yeah, they, they they care about mental health. Mm. <laughs> Don't want people killing themselves on the job. Yeah, off so the job. Please. This big net. Yeah. So um, after so basically, right? Yeah, it turns out this the false hope company was uh, a selling hope that turned out to be false. Uh, so uh, jeers it's to like Lord's the snake down. oil doesn't even do anything. I've, I've tried to oil my snake multiple times, but he's not getting any more lubricated. I like the idea of snake oil being oil for snakes. <laughs> um, now, Alice, I yes. want this is I want to hand to you for this section because I want you to put your little hat with the press card on. Um, okay, I'm, do- I'm tell doing me that now. If you're feeling safe with Susan, I am feeling extremely safe with Susan, and so will all of you be after I finish this segment. So we're going to do some mm. like London centrism because we don't do enough of that on this show. Uh, you you oh, may yeah. be aware that there's going to be a London mayoral election, uh, which Sadiq Khan is going to win handily, and so the Conservative yeah. Party candidate is just sort of like this joke position that no one really wants to do. As with all C- sort Conservative of Conservative Party of candidate ninety six underscore final underscore one underscore dot exactly yeah, exactly yeah. And, and like basically all Conservative politics in London is like this. Um, weirdly enough, you know who was on that train for a while was Kemi Badenoch until she climbed out into real politics. Um, but this guy that they sent, Daniel Korski, he was he was going to be like a fun sort of like startup mind for us to deal with because he had ideas. As right? I recall, one of them was he was like, what if we turned off London's red lights? Yeah, at it, night in it, order so that you could drive faster. He wanted to set up a digital core of coders. Uh, he wanted to like install vents in the road to do carbon capture. He was like, a classic weird guy, you know, basically occupying the same space as Vault in Europe where it's like, can't really do any real politics, and you can't really even be that conservative in London. So you just have to be like this strange mix of uh, like odd. Well, things. they're trying to rebuttle the Boris Lightning, you know. Yeah, they yeah. A, they need a zeitgeisty Tory who seems not Tory enough to win in London. But then he he has since dropped out of the race to spend more time with his allegations of sexual assault. So ah. now the Conservative Party are scrambling, and what they're left with is Susan Hall. Thus, safer mm. with Susan, who was like, yeah. she used to be council leader, I think, and there's just nothing there. Well, if you I'll look tell on you her why website, I like Susan. Mm. I like Susan you because like Susan? even mm. though she was a council leader, all of her positions and opinions about everything give the sense of someone who walked into the council meeting to complain about, like, I don't know, like the 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 low emission zone ruining her TV yeah. signal because of like 5G, COVID, whatever, but accidentally sat in the leader's chair and then just started leading the council. 
Yeah, she's kind of perfectly like vox pop in that way. I like I don't hate her, but like she has if you look on her website, she has three policies. Policy number one, uh stop the ULES immediately. Uh oh, you will more cars. Yeah. She is going to start talking about fifteen minute cities if she hasn't already. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh so like no uh, low emission zones, no low traffic neighborhoods. You will be in the car all the time by order of the mayor or else. That's one policy. Policy number two, she's going to give the Met Police about like 200 million more quid and rocket launchers in order to make the youth afraid of the police again. Mm. Well, it's, it sounds well, they're like finally she... going to be policing the quiet carriage on the train. <laughs> well, it right, sounds yeah. like what she wants to do, right, is she wants to make mm. the Met more like the NYPD, where cool. it's like, we're going to stop doing uh, austerity to you in the sense that you're going to have a mine clearing vehicle and like mm. airborne entry to if teens are hanging around. Like we're yes. going to position artillery around the M25 and the police can mm. call it in anywhere they need to under a Susan Hall's mayoralty. So long as it doesn't damage a road. If it does damages a road, we're not calling it can in. Can you imagine how many Metropolitan Police officers would die if they were given NYPD style equipment. <laughs> Just like constantly falling out of helicopters, blowing themselves up, things of that nature. Oh yeah. And uh, there is one third policy which is being a bit racist to Sadiq Khan, which presumably she'll wind oh. down once he's not mayor anymore. Um, yeah. And the thing is, right, she's not going to win, she knows she can't win. And so the whole thing has this curiously... So why not be a little bit racist? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the whole thing has this kind of like last day of term vibe where it's like, yeah, it's conservatism, but it's so lackluster. Um, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'll probably do some shit, I guess. It's conservatism, but like... Do you, do you guys like that? Cops? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's... I like it because it's like... Um, it's conservatism, but like having just woken up from a very deep sleep. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's conservatism, but you've just had surgery and you've come to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, well, they're building on the success of Sean Bailey. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the guy yeah. who went campaigning in places that weren't even in London. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing the thing that I really like about Susan Hall is that uh, is that sort of all of the conservative party's politics all of the stuff that, that we know they get up to on a national level is underpinned by an army of like thousands of people who are like this who are just like pretty ordinary uh, like a bit reactionary and just kind of like getting along and doing all of the bureaucracy that allows Boris to do all of the shit that he did and it's just like it's so grim because the, your reward for doing all of this for a lifetime of dedicated service is like you can lose an election to Sadiq Khan by a lot. That's like cool. Okay, you, you can, thanks. You can be uh, the Washington generals. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can you can stand in this career exploding election. I mean, look. I'd say though, you know, we hear from Sean Bailey more and more every day. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. He's coming back. I, I want to talk about a startup before we go into our interview. Um, it's called We Head, and it's all one word. The W is capitalized, the H is capitalized. Oh, and I'll give you a hint. It's a season one we type of company, and it's as stupid as the Juicero. Wow. That, that bold promises already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we Head. head. It, so season one implies that it's a, like a, a product that does an actual physical thing. It's not like a, some wellness bullshit. Right? Yeah, it's a Guga. 
It's a Google. Okay. Yeah. Is it is it like a hat of some kind? Uh, no. No, but I, <laughs> I've it, replaced a juice arrow by sticking one of those Philippe Stark juices to my head and headbutting all of my fruit. <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's a, logically, if it's like the juice arrow, it would be a machine that squeezes uh, the brain out of your head like it's squeezing a bag. Oh, and you're like, like it'd be like a hat that's a kind of like vice. Yeah. <laughs> it just slowly squeezes your head until your brain comes out of your head. Hussein, we head. What do you think? I was sort of going to go with like the low ball thing that everyone was guessing, which is like it's a machine that sucks you off, but. It can make you feel like someone. Oh no, that's kind of gross. Actually. Okay. <laughs> All right. So. Um, it's, it's a machine that sucks off multiple people at once, but it's yeah. sort of like it's kind of it, kind positioned. of in that vein. But I was thinking like something a lot worse. Hussein mm. respectfully withdraws his. So, riff. so my um my my more sensible thing is that it's some sort of machine that allows multiple people to think in one. Br- I I don't fucking Look, know, okay. man. Like, right. I'll I'll tell you. Be the first to quote unquote head in. WeHead is the first spatial video communication device for hosts to perceive uh-huh. remote guests naturally in three dimensions and for guests oh God, to immerse okay. in the real meeting space. Is it is it a VR sort of thing where it's just like you can just be in one off like you can sort of be in your house, but when you put your VR set headset on or something along those lines, like it feels like you're in the same office? That's pretty close. Um, but it's not VR. It's a thing that you put, it's a, it's a head, head and shoulders sized contrivance that you place on a meeting desk that has several <laughs> layers of screen. Oh, it's a Star Wars hologram. Did you fucking... <laughs> oh, yes. Ah, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. My, my other idea was that it was some sort of thing that you put on your head and shoulders that makes it, so if your boss wants to like, if you are remote and your boss like taps you on the shoulder or something, you can feel it. Uh, but... That feels a little bit. I'm going to <laughs> punching no. you in the head. <laughs> so, I have sent you wehead.com. Yes, you have. This is oh. the thing that they're advertising. Oh, it I is, hate that. It is a head and shoulders shaped um, screen and camera. Uh, uh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. No, it's not. It's the head and shoulders of a rock'em sock'em robot. Shaped. Yeah, it's it's great if you're teleconferencing in one of Daft Punk. Like, <laughs> looks like Optimus Prime. It's fucking, but it, it, it looks like five phone screens taped together at really odd angles in a way that you would look at at like a sort of Tate Modern exhibit in like 2005 and go, oh damn, that's yeah. quite clever actually. It, it's so funny given that it is just a head on a plinth that it's called Wee Head. That that has made it much funnier now. Oh. Like the name was funny to begin with, but there's something funny about it turning out to just be a head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, and, and it's well, just like it's whipping back and forth ar- like it's articulated on a neck so you can make eye contact with different mm, people. Mm. So you could headbutt someone from thousands <laughs> of miles away. Yeah. So here's what Wee Head offers. It offers a full-size face and head gestures. Guest head movements. <laughs> I love it when I'm offered a full size face. <laughs> guest head movements are mimicked by the Wii Head's motors in real time to allow guests to focus on every aspect of communication. Eye contact feels incredibly natural, which I agree with. It feels incredibly natural uh, due to the fact the camera is positioned right at the eye display. So, also, ideally, you're supposed to have two Wii Heads. Of course. Even though one Wii Head is enough for spatial communication. You can just use a laptop or smartphone with a conventional how, camera. Yeah. How, how much does one of these Wii Heads run you? Like, okay, what well, are you spending? If you want to get the Wii Head Founders Edition, that's going to run you $1,999 $1, cash American. 
Um, what what is the founders edition? What does that offer? Oh, thank you for asking, Milo. Uh, you get a uh, is it an even bigger face. <laughs> yeah, you get a huge face. No, you get an yeah. NFT. Uh, oh, awesome! Those? Yeah, great. Well, th- those things that are still you, really do, valuable. Do you get an mm. NFT of your face? I would be so much better. No, it's just an NFT that says We Head. <laughs> um, Amazing. Or loving that. You can get the We Head Pro, which uh, enhances sensory okay. perception with the most advanced avatar technologies. Uh, a three-axis motor for more realistic gestures and a stereo camera. Uh-huh. That's going to be four thousand five hundred and fifty-five dollars, cash American. That's a I mean, lot it, of it's money. a bargain. Look, <laughs> I don't know what you're complaining about. This thing is going to change lives. You, you, you just uh, you get are, your like nine thousand dollars, and you get two of these, and then yeah. you know, perfect. And then we can be sucking each other off from anywhere in the world. <laughs> How do how do I put this? It makes you sort of look like a transformer, uh-huh. yeah, as in like from the cartoon Transformers. Because well, because the way the screens are arranged, it's it's mostly yeah. like a big T shape. So you have like one horizontal screen for yeah. the eyes, and then a vertical one for the mouth, and then the cheeks just kind of get like lost. Yeah, like on- I don't be- understand why they've done that. It would have been so easy just to have a screen big enough to show the whole face. Oh, because you have yeah. because an important part of being on a phone call with someone is to see when they're looking to the side. Mm. Uh, and so you can Ugh. see them in profile, and that's worth it, thousands of dollars. So this, it, it, so this is a machine that will like determine whether you, in fact, have a second screen at home and whether you are looking at that second screen <laughs> when you're supposed to be having a first screen meeting. Correct, mm-hmm. yes. That's kind of what it feels like its only use is. It's like, oh, we can see, we can see by the wee head that your, that your eyes are looking somewhere else. Well, yeah. His head has moved 40 degrees. He's looking at the hentai again. They said, <laughs> the futuristic looking smart display provides an experience of physical presence of a remote person in the room through 3D screens and head gestures. The head shaped device, I don't know what the fuck head they're talking about, enables head people to have a deeper device. sense of intimacy within a conversation. Would you feel a deeper uh-huh. sense of intimacy talking to Chappie, but with his head cut off? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, yeah. it, it looks I would if he so by me. <laughs> Yeah, that would be pretty intimate. The way that it cuts off the face, it looks like you're it looks like you're wearing like a Corinthian helmet almost. You get the like Mm, eyes and the mouth and nothing else. It's like cool. (laughs) I find this very intimate. Well, (laughs) yeah, great use for the wee head is uh, putting them all at Thermopylae. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Ilya Sadoshkin, the founder of Zero Distance, the company that makes wee head, commented, Uh, "Of course, it's a Russian man. Wee head is an advanced robotic, state-of-the-art technology available for consumers. This device is for tech enthusiasts who want to touch and experience a part of the future technology we're working on today and support the development of our full-size avatar system. So they they are starting with the head and they're building down from there. Know the phrase, the fish rots from the head? Well, the avatar is built from the head. I'm very scared when they get to, like, wee dick. Like, I don't... We build, we build virtual head in honor of my father, who only piece left of him was his head. We found it in bowling ball bag. <laughs> the big idea for the future. He, he owned all of hot dogs in Soviet Union. <laughs> the <laughs> met with unfortunate end. The big idea for the future is to bring to the market an affordable avatar system for spatial full body presence uh-huh. in a remote location. And the basic idea is, look, if it's too dangerous to leave your house, just have, have an avatar robot that's got like a chappy head on it, which is the plot of the movie Avatar. Uh, avatars. Um, no, sorry, surrogates. Excuse me, not avatars. It's within the Avatar universe. Though. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of the things that led to Earth getting all fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it is such a funny little 
uh, doohickey, essentially. So we're going to plonk your head on the desk, and then everyone's going to feel very intimate, immersed, and connected to one another. When when this oh, thing yeah. goes bankrupt, as it inevitably will, we should try and do like we did for the Gisera and get like the chassis of one for cheap. I Just absolutely want to. To put get, it in the get, studio get as a this war and trophy. the golden arm, put them together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hell yeah, baby! <laughs> oh, we can build. So we can get a second golden arm. You've got a head that can Nazi salute. Yeah, we're getting <laughs> getting perilously close to building a kind of startup golem. Yeah, we well the Juicero could yeah. be the chest. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, the Juicero could be one of its like grabber hands, right? Mm-hmm. And then the golden arm oh, so could be got, the other we've hand. Got a, we've got a fucking a startup man, a homunculus that can like look around, headbutt you, grab and squeeze anything you hand to it, and also do a Hitler salute. It's useful. I mean, what if what if you're having a virtual Nazi rally? Yeah, and also, it's like who know, we could we could build. We're basically talking about is building a space marine dreadnought out of just the various mm, yeah. leavings of the different companies we've talked about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got, we, we can utilize bits of the Elon Musk standy mm-hmm. somehow. It's got it's <laughs> it's um its eyes are actually made from view glass. Uh, it's got it's it moves around from Lordstown Motors uh, wheels mm-hmm. that um it, it, it can cook you a pizza just in into like <laughs> the, the torso region. Yeah, but with the because it has the Lordstown Motors wheels, if it goes over a small bump, it explodes. <laughs> Um, anyway, by using WeHead, one can. This is Pavel Rekhanov, head of product, said. By using WeHead, one can feel as if you have been teleported into the host environment, looking around and communicating freely with anyone, not constrained by the rectangle of the screen. I would uh, hate only to be constrained by fact that you are head on ball joint. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to be constrained by the rectangle of the screen. We had. Hello, Rishi. Hope you're doing well in the rectangle of the machine. <laughs> Uh, we had is exceptionally good at recreating the feeling as if the person is actually there with you. Uh, is it? Is it good at that? Coming soon. Chat GPT Sorry, integration. <laughs> oh fuck me! Wait, so you could like believe that you're really headbutting Chat GPT? I have no idea what, what the fuck Chat GPT is going to do in the thing that's use case oh, is to I, well, let just you. You're a large language world. You think you're odd. Just, just one thing, one thing here in the group chat, in this sort of in the Zencaster chat, I've put in a link to the LinkedIn profile picture of Pavel Rakhanov. Yeah, he looks oh, amazing. Wow. I trust him with everything. Also, is that an NFT? <laughs> I think Could- it might be AI generated. He's got kind of a galactic background. It's very, very strange. He's also yeah. got the Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven haircut. Anyway, anyway, that was we had uh, a fun little. Rem- it felt like I was in twenty eighteen again. I don't know about you all. Mm. We are now going to throw to us in the short future uh, to talk to Emiliano. And we will see you in a couple of minutes to talk about farms. Bye, everyone. And from part one, we are now into our part two, where we are joined by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's Emiliano Molino, uh, who is here because he couldn't get on to the Ed Balls George Osborne podcast called like the mm. best of uh, best of fiends or, or whatever it is. Emiliano, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I got to fire my management clearly. I mean, this is the best of <laughs> um, yeah, it's We're the best of fiends. You are the best fiends. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it is a pleasure to have you on indeed. Um, mm. And what sort of sparked... Welcome all- back to our Guy Ritchie podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what sparked all of this? We, we get distracted for like five minutes in the interim between recording these two segments where we just do a bunch of Guy Ritchie-based bits. What inspired yeah. this? Yeah, what inspired this um, this uh, meeting of minds uh, was... A- He's talking about like, this a legitimately very... FBI. No, he's not... <laughs> Very serious social issue in the voice of like Alan Ford in a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, that's right. No, but you have written an article on uh, the frankly alarming conditions faced by uh, migrant laborers frequently coming under the auspices of um, like agricultural working visas from South Africa, Kazakhstan, and further afield uh, to the UK, and the conditions that they face on behalf uh, on the part of. Um, big grocery stores, farms, uh, employment agencies, the state itself, uh, a patchwork of regulation that won't touch it. And all of this leads to, I'm just going to read a quote from um, the evidence that you recently gave at Parliament. Uh, You said, Sybil from South Africa said that workers were not viewed as humans, but as chattels and farm supervisors would refer to them by their numbers rather than their names. So can you give us just a little overview of how we got to this place and what, where we are? Well, actually, to start off, that that quote from Sybil, where she says farms refer to them as numbers and not by their names, well, farm supervisors refer to them as numbers and not their names, this was actually confirmed to us by one of the farms. When we did a right of reply email, we emailed one farm saying, look, these are all the allegations against you. And the farm got back and said, yeah, this is, this is a standard business practice across the sector. Jeez, they didn't even deny it? They didn't even deny it. No, they confirmed it and said everybody else was doing it too. Uh, and they said, but don't worry about it. This is not... Um, this is not to dehumanize them. This is because of a business need. Wait, you got, you got through to the Panamanian banker at the farm. <laughs> oh. oh, crap. Just I like probably shouldn't have said we refer to them as numbers. <laughs> it's like trying to thread that particular PR needle of like, it's not dehumanizing. It's just that for business reasons, we had to dehumanize them. Because businesses are not known to dehumanize, right? Like, um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, how we got here... Uh, I mean, the question is, where do we start? I mean, agriculture has always been highly exploitative sector. You know, it's, time and time again, it comes to the, the top uh, of the list by, 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 by regulators and others as the, the, one of the most highly exploitative sectors. And it's not just in the UK, but across the world. Now, the, mm. the way the UK is different to other places is, well, it's twofold. Is it in a good way? I'll let you guess. Well, let's put some money. Let's put some money on this. How many people say good, and how many people in the studio yeah. say bad? The way, the way the UK is different. I'm hearing better. I'm hearing really great. Um, so, um, so yeah. So the ways um, one of the one of the things that sets Britain apart is that historically people used to come to to do this kind of fruit picking work and you know and and the and what we cover here is is the sort of labor intensive farming so it's not um it's not uh wheats and things like that or you know, cattle cattle or, or or chickens it's fruit picking it's vegetable picking which is like highly labor intensive so people used to come uh through free movement so romanian workers bulgarian workers used to come through free movement of people but when when brexit ended the government had to figure out a way to get all these people in so they created a seasonal worker visa. And since before it was created, or before it was launched, every single human rights and labor rights organization was saying, this is a recipe for exploitation. Because workers are on six-month visas, 
so you don't really know what's going on. You know, you don't really know to get the con- you know get get to understand the country, get to understand where the support services are. Um, people are tied to the recruiter, so the recruiter that sponsors their visa also decides which farm they work in. And if work runs out at that farm, they decide if they're going to transfer them to another farm or not. So they decide whether they have work or not. And, you know, people are isolated and 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 they take, people pay a lot of money to come here because all the cost falls on the worker. So if you're coming from South Africa, you have to pay for the visa, for the travel, you're, you're, you're paying at least before you arrive, you're spending about 1,500 pounds. So you're 1,500 pounds in debt before you even start working. So within that context, we also have like the British context, which is that, um, there's very weak labor enforcement. There's very strong anti-union laws, very harsh anti-union laws. You know, in terms of labor enforcement, there's this organization called the Gang Masters and Labor Abuse Authority. They, um, they're supposed to regulate the agriculture sector. They're supposed to license uh, farm recruiters. The Home Office spends more on pens and paper than it does on financing the Gang Masters and Labor Abuse Authority. So they spend just like seven million pounds. Um, that, that's so little. Yeah, so I mean, it's not, I mean, it's less than what they spend on pens and paper. So, yeah, it, it's peanuts. So that's how we get here to a situation where people are readily exploited. Yeah, and this is interesting to to bring up as well in the context of you know one of the many contradictions of the British state trying to reproduce itself, right? Because what do you hear from Tory ministers over and over and over again? Nobody wants to work anymore. Why don't we just have the like you know? gangs of children who are otherwise hanging out in the town center why don't we have them go pick fruit and it's because the cost of picking fruit and vegetables and having them being cheap in the supermarket is borne by people the british state and hostile environment specifically have made replaceable and easy to screw with well that's the thing right i mean workers arrive here and they say that they're surprised like how exploitative the uk is you have people coming from south africa mm-hmm. and they're like shit i had People in farms in South Africa have more rights than they have here. And mm. a lot of people are surprised. Like, it's not sold this way, right? When people are being recruited in South Africa and Nepal, it's not sold like, oh, you know what? Like, the supervisor is going to shout at you. You're going to be punished if you don't pick fast enough. You're going to be living in a really dingy caravan where you're going to freeze over winter. It's not advertised that way. People, it's advertised like it's a great, it's a great time. Look at this video of people picking and everyone smiling and everyone picking really slowly. That's what it's advertised like. And they arrive here and they realize it's a shit show. And the fact is, the fact is, like, if people could go back, a lot of them probably would, but they just have these massive debts that they have to now pay off. So if you got the guy from the job center and forced him to do this, I mean, you'd have pandemonium on the farm because likely they wouldn't take this shit. There's a, a detail in one of your articles uh, where I, I think the, one of the farm managers has asked how long it's been since a British person has done any of this work. Um, and he says, yeah, we had one guy turn up a couple of years ago and he left the same day. It's just sort of it's it's just intolerable, and I, I, it's cool, I guess, that the entire sort of like sector of the agricultural economy depends on us being able to trick people into coming here forever. Mm. Uh, that that definitely is like first of all moral, and second of all sustainable, right? Yeah, it's a, a better life awaits you in the off-world Britain colonies. <laughs> Truly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, in- trickery has always been a big part of the British economy, and I think it's important that we accept this mm. core competency. What, what I what strikes me most, I think, about your article is how, I mean, we sort of we joke about feudalism on this podcast quite a bit, but how almost literally copied over into a kind of neoliberal context with an agency rather than a kind of you know baron or knight as your as the feudal lord. How we have the same kind of tying to the land. 
We have the same debts and obligations. We even have the same um, sort of, uh, you know, I'd say, uh, 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 fixing of the of the arrangements. Like, oh, you see, you you owe me five bags of grain, and I'm going to owe you three bags of flour. But I shake down the bag of grain, and I don't let you shake down the bag of flour. These kinds of of arrangements, and that's and the reason that that's possible. Right is be- is and this is what I come back to. Why we say, well, no British person would stand for this, and you actually couldn't subject a British person to this because do you know you can you can't threaten a British person with deportation. But what's constantly hanging over the heads of all of these farm workers is you owe us a lot of money. By the way, we're not you know you don't just have to pay for to get here. You have to rent your bed in the caravan from us. And you cite in the article that six workers sharing one caravan can pay two thousand pounds a calendar month. More expensive per square meter than central fucking London. I mean and, and the space is smaller than a one bedroom flat. It's actually regulations do not allow you to build a one bedroom flat that small. Yet you have six workers in a caravan, you know, in three in three rooms paying that and living in that space. And the caravan is falling apart. Like this guy, Vajim, uh, who actually gave evidence with me at the House of Lords last week, um, he was saying that, well, and he showed me a thermostat photo. It got as cold as eight degrees Celsius in his caravan. He was saying to the House of Lords that there was days that, um, that he didn't know if he was going to wake up. There was nights he'd go to sleep and he said, if the heater turns off during the night, I don't know if I'm going to wake up. He said like there were girls that were uh, sharing a bed and cuddling to, you know, like to keep each, each other warm at night. I mean, it's, it's dystopian. And, and yeah, like you say, people are paying, you know, they pay for the, and, and there seems to be like squeezing at every point because not only are they paying for the caravan, right? They're paying for gas and electric. They're buying gas, you know, electricity cards. They are paying for the, for the washing machines. You know, these washing machines, you know, communal washing machines where you have to put a pound in to, to run it. Yeah, They're yeah. paying for those. And I saw a photo, someone sent me a photo the other day. Also the washing machines from like the eighties or the nineties, you know, these are, so it's, it's stuff that is in t- tremendous level of disrepair, but they're charging you for everything. Every little thing. Yeah, it's vintage. It's, exactly, People right? People pay extra for that. They should put these farms in Hackney and then, you know, then it would work. Yeah, It's yeah, the yeah. enormous cost of being poor because at every stretch, you are at someone else's mercy. That's why being poor is... It's one of the many reasons why being poor is so expensive. And, and you say, if you want to tot up some of these costs... In other farms, interviewers reported sleeping in small caravans where farmers would house up to seven workers at a time in shared rooms, with each paying 85 pounds a week, extra for gas and electricity. Some farms demand that workers cover the cost of bed linen, with one charging 15 pounds for a duvet and pillows, and a pound at a time to use the washing machines. Some had to bring their own crockery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that, that's the thing. People, you know, if, especially if you add the aspect of debts, right? People rack up huge debts to come and it seems that there's obstacles put in their way at every, le- at every step for them to actually make money and pay those debts back. It's also interesting to me, um, we've, we've had Sarah Tabor on this podcast before and uh, she has this point that she, she always brings up, which is that when we talk about farmers publicly, what we're talking about is not farm workers, but farm owners. Um, and that sort of like gets flattened. Uh, and so, you know, farmers have like sometimes pretty good political representation uh, and pretty good lobbying um and when you sort of reflect that like they do this pose of like you know we're the people who grow your food and it's like well sort of yes but you're also the people who are charging the people who pick the fruit to you know wash their clothes i mean they're not even the supervisors right so the guys who are going to be the supervisors are going to be either you know people have been there longer so be like romanians or bulgarians who are then supervising the ukrainians or the south africans or the nepalis who arrived more recently Right. 
Um, so, I mean, they, they're pretty disconnected to what's going on on the field. And you're right. Farmers have really strong lobbying. Right? The National Farmers Union is not a union. It's, it's a CBI for farm owners. Mm. And they have incredibly strong lobbying because also they're really good at bragging about their lobbying. They, they pretty much said that, you know, a lot of the changes that have happened, like the creation of this, of this visa and the expansion of this visa, right? In, in 2019, it was only 2,500 visas that could be issued. This year, it's 45,000 that can be issued, like a 2,000% expansion. This expansion happened because the NFU, the National Farmers Union, kept on lobbying for more and more visas so they could have these workers on, these, on the farms. Uh, and you know, if you want to lo- if you want to talk about, you might say collusion between capital and government to hyper exploit workers who are deemed to be expendable. I mean, this is sort of the er example of that, right? But I, I want to ask an- another question, right? Which is, we mentioned the uh, the gangmasters um, and, and labor abuse authority. Um, that sort of leads us into another uh, a cul de sac here, which is exactly where these workers fall? Like, who is regulating them? Because in your article, what you talk about is a kind of crack between local authorities, different under or entirely unfunded uh, supervisory authorities that look specifically at farm labor, and how their particular status as living on the farm, not in permanent buildings, as employees of... um, uh, agencies, agency. yeah, yeah, basically means they have no rights. So how does how can you tell? Explain that structure and where the regulation is supposed to land and where it doesn't. It's a really strange web in the UK in terms of regulation um, of well, housing on the one hand and then also employment on the other. So with employment, um, there is a, a number of poorly funded employment enforcement agencies, which through the bonfire of regulation, you know, David Cameron's bonfire regulation have subsequently been worse and worse funded. So we mentioned the Gangmaster Labor Abuse Authority earlier. And in the design of this scheme, and this was like something that uh, the Director of Labor Market Enforcement said recently, it's like, well, the way the scheme is designed is that if you have a problem on your farm, who you complain to is to your recruiter. But the recruiter is paid for by the farm. So the person you're supposed to complain to about the farm is the person that gets paid by the farm. Uh, then you can try and go to one of statutory authorities like the Gangmasters Labor Abuse Authority, but like we said, they have they have very poor funding. They have almost no inspectors. They have maybe twenty inspectors for the whole country, just a bit over that. And often, you know, I I I brought a situation to them about a woman who complained uh, about first being asked to share a bed with another woman, and then being asked to go to a caravan where there were only men from a country that wasn't hers, so who didn't even speak the same language as her, and she said she didn't feel safe doing this. She complained to the Gangmasters Labor Abuse Authority. The Home Office was saying that, well, if people have problems with their housing on, car- uh, on their caravans, they can go to um, uh, their local authority. They're the ones who should deal with, uh, with housing issues. But actually, housing regulation says that um, uh, local authorities, uh, wh- what's covered by housing regulation is just stuff that is, has foundations, is fixed to the ground, and caravans aren't fixed to the ground. So it falls outside the remit of, uh, of local authorities. And local authorities can ask for that right, but... Sit in, you know, in the whole history of this of this regulation, a local authority has never asked for the right for the right to be able to inspect uh, caravans on farmland. So huh. these guys fall completely. How interesting, right? How convenient, right? And so these guys fall completely within with, between the cracks. So if you have a problem in your caravan, well, you know, you, your best hope is that your farm will deal with it. If they don't deal with it, you really have nowhere to go. Well, no, because to inspect that, I'd have to give myself the right to inspect it, and I've asked myself, but I haven't given myself the right. So 
Nothing this, I can do, I'm afraid. This kind of feels like, and I don't know whether deliberate's the right word, but sort of when I was like going through your article and just like hearing you talk right now, one of the things that keeps kind of coming up is just like the hostile environment and how the hostile environment has sort of been the cornerstone of immigration, sort of this type of immigration policy for, I mean, for a very, very long time, but particularly after 2000, I think when when Theresa May was prime minister, um, although I imagine it probably came during the Home Office as well. And this, and I, I wondered what your thoughts were on this because by the way that you explained it, it sort of feels like, well, on you know, you've got this kind of perfect mix of chaos in terms of a state that's kind of degrading and institutions that don't really know who they are supposed to be kind of regulating or even how to do it. There's not really, there doesn't feel like there's any really will, there's will to do it. And so as a result, and I think as you mentioned, like particularly after Brexit, where there is like a real demand for this kind of very, very cheap labor and this very type, this very cheap labor that relies on exploitation. Um, and so even though this may not be like a deliberate extension or this may not be like a deliberate conscious act of policy, it kind of feels like this is a logical, not even like an endpoint, but like a logical next step of what the hostile environment was sort of designed to be. Like this place that you are kind of, you're either in and you're going to get like exploited to shit or it'll be so bad that you have no choice but to like go back. So there's a contradiction at play, right? Which is that they're always demanding for more workers. Right, the, the, the NFU and others, and even the, and the government. Well, a certain faction of the government is always. You know, we need these workers to plug up these shortages. And I don't know if you saw the statistics. I think it was uh, last year. Uh, it was you know one of the highest numbers of, of visas issued ever. Right, uh, and an, a huge increase in the number of visas issued. And it's not just for agricultural workers. You know, it's care workers. It's um, it's a whole slew of workers that have to come to c- plug up these shortages. At the same time, the system is created in such a way that it makes it incredibly hard for people to affirm their rights. Um, and, and you mentioned the hostile environment. And I think we alluded to earlier as well, the way that immigration enforcement is used as, as a whipping hand, right? Vadim and uh, Andrew, these two guys from, from Kazakhstan, were saying uh, at, at the House of Lords that they were constantly being threatened by their manager that, you know, if, 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 they, if, they, had, if they kept on complaining, well, you know what, we can send you back. You know, it was always that. And you know what? We can send you back. Not only can we send you back, but the next day, the recruiter can just bring us more workers and replace you. And so this idea that we want the workers, but we want the workers to be replaceable, easily replaceable, right? So it's just, it's completely dehumanizing, dehumanizing people and just, treat, you know, it's funny because there's also this other thing where, that's, where, where the government's always talking about like, you know, we're going to deal with the issue of shortages in the, in, the, in the agricultural sector by automation, by bringing in machines. But what happens is that it's not that they bring in machines, it's that they make humans be more like robots, right? And make them be more like machines. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, that woman I mentioned earlier, right, who, um, who had this com- made this complaint about, uh, you know, first having, being asked to share a bed with another woman because they didn't have any more beds in, in the caravan, or when, and then was told, you know, actually just be with all these strange, strangers who are men. Um, a few months later, she was left without work. And she asked her recruiter to transfer her to another farm. And she kept on asking. And ultimately, she had to go and stay with, with family because the farm didn't let her stay in, on the farm. And then what the recruiter did was report her to the home office as an, as an absconder, even though she had three months left on her visa, right? And what really puts the cherry on the cake is that this recruiter is actually a charity. Just the, the abuse of the charity sector and sort of like charity status in itself, that, that's an episode in itself. 
you guys should look these guys these guys up. I mean, it's it's. Uh, What's the name of the the um, producer? Anyway? Concordia. And so, look, looking at all of that, right? This is a, this is such, I think, a perfect example of as we sort of have been mentioning the the direct link between like the um, your usual right wing immigrant moral panics, calling for ever more enforcement, ever more enforcement, ever more enforcement, and then the state returning with extreme enforcement for um for farm owners because what the as we say what the hostile environment does is it says to someone like Sybil or Vadim it says do not unionize if you make trouble mm. we they will deport first and ask questions later which means you have no leverage because for whatever reason there is still a belief among people that, by the way, as these people go back to their home countries, is going to be pretty fucking quickly dispelled that this is a good place to work. Um, uh, Vadim Sardov said, even in post-Soviet countries, no one runs a business like that by making people live under such terrible conditions. Mm, no. So, you know, like we used to recruit uh, workers mainly from Romania to do this kind of work. If you look at the list of where the seasonal worker visa is being issued, Romania isn't even in the top 10 countries anymore, right? So each year, the recruiters go further and further afield to recruit workers, right? And so when I was writing about this, you know, 2022, they were recruiting people from Indonesia, from Nepal, from South Africa. I saw in the list, like some guys from Chile. Um, mm. I think this year they're going to Bangladesh. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're just, they're pushing and pushing the frontier out. There was, I think, more than people in more, from more than 60 countries that were recruited in 2022. Mm. But the Labour Party has a solution for this. They've got a problem here in this country with uh, British people don't want to work fruit picking in these conditions. So they bring over immigrant labor and they're very precarious and they use that to make them accept the poor conditions. And fundamentally, the reason for this is that these people could be deported at any time. So our policy will be to make it so that any British person can also be deported <laughs> to a random country <laughs> at any time. You don't like working on this farm? I hope you like living in Sudan. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> We're going to replace you with someone from Spins the Wheel, Poland. <laughs> <laughs> they never come over like, here. So, so, so yeah, Britain we, will now we have are a fully... relegation zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so we are just burning through. Like, we've got a whole world to get through. And eventually we will do it. Eventually everyone in the world who might potentially be tricked into coming here and picking raspberries is going to be aware of what a mm. shitty idea that is. Colonialism, um, too, and, you know, you guys yeah. tried it the first time around. You know, it sort of worked for you guys. I was trying mm -hmm. pushing the frontiers the second time around, yeah. uh, the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or we've got to go Australia mode and get gap year students <laughs> to do it. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Like, what happens after this? Do we just, like, keep doing this until we hope someone invents the AI that picks raspberries? Like, what? That's literally the government policy. Like, the government mm. policy is every time they're like, oh, you know, we have shortages, uh, you know, and British people don't want to do work. They always, and every, in every document, in every kind of policy proposal, it's like, we're going to automate. Well, this is also what people in the Labour Party have said as well. I didn't know who it was. I, I was thinking, I didn't know if it was Keir Starmer or not. But they had said they had sort of said that like, well, you know, we need to sort of, you know, it, it was that it was that very like we're not the Tories in the sense of like, you know, we don't want to have as brutal an immigration policy, but ultimately we need to use technology to uh, reduce our quote unquote dependence on immigration, right? That was the line that was used. I was also thinking about something that came up in a very very old TF, and I can't remember where it was, but it was this idea that you know. Um, the the more effective way for and, and again it sort of highlights this contradiction because 
um, you know, the British state likes to sort of say that, oh, you know, it's because we're so generous and we're so kind and like, that's the reason why, you know, these immigrants are sort of coming here and exploiting the system and all that stuff. But then mm. at the same time, it's kind of like, well, no, objectively, that's not true. But also when immigrants do come here, like the government and the way in which the state works is very, very uh, very much well, very much the opposite. They want want to make you have like the worst time possible, so yeah. that you never and the, come back. The immigrants back. we need specifically, the ones we're dependent on. Well, just like everyone, it's just like well, every mm-hmm. immigrant that comes here will just have a horrible time. Um, and obviously, like you know, there are other people. There are there are some immigrants that will have like a really, really fucking horrible time, as the people in in uh, in Emilia's article have sort of you know uh, are, are good examples of. But it does kind of feel. I think you know your point about the contradiction. Is really and one that doesn't even make sense is there, and I wonder whether it's because like you know the British state has found itself in a place where like it is very very dependent on extremely cheap labor in order to function, um, but at the same time it also needs to sort of prove performatively how brutal it can be, and so nothing is ever going to be enough. Like you know even if it deport the even if like the Rwanda project kind of like had was kind of uh, going on that still wouldn't be enough even if like you sort of you know uh blew up the dinghies like that was still wouldn't be enough mm. and so there is this so, so like standing on top of this human pyramid and kicking mm. the absolute shit out of everyone <laughs> it's, holding me up it's dependent on the brutality to function but it also needs to be more brutal in order to sort of survive politically and it can if never... i don't resolve the labor market problems i will deport myself <laughs> I will be replaced by someone from uh, 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 East Timor. <laughs> and it can net, that's the thing. It's not, it's not static. There, as you say, you're saying there's no place where it ends. It's a continuing process because it will never solve the problem. So it has to keep purporting to solve the problem that it wants to solve. Oh, things can always solution, get more miserable. The only solution mm. is further brutality. And talking, about stuff, like, talking about stuff like AI as somehow being able to replace the people you're already making live like robots by constantly threatening them with deportation and putting them deep into debt is, frankly, it's, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie that the press is complicit in selling by never in- interrogating what the fuck you mean by AI. And, it's, and indeed, it's all part of the same big ratchet. It's all part of the same big machine and it's all part of the same big wheel. And... I guess, since we're sort of coming up to, to time a little bit, I wanted to ask you, Miliano, you're a journalist and also an organizer. If you're some random asshole listening to this show and you want to do something, anything about this, what can you, a random asshole listening to this show, do? Christ, I don't know. Um, it's difficult. So the problem we have is that unions aren't really active in this sector. So in theory, Unite should be organizing these workers but they do not. Uh, and part of the reason is that these are, are people on six-month contracts, so it's incredibly difficult to organize people on six-month contracts or, or, or who can be in the country for six months, although they probably should. Um, so if you're a Unite member, push your union to do its work in the agricultural sector. Um, and actually, actually, agriculture is like was one of the earliest sectors that was unionized, um, toll puddle martyrs and all that. If you are, um, you know, the TUC sitting on a pot of gold, so if you're in, on another, you know, it's like a dragon protecting this pile of money, which uh, it doesn't use. Uh, so if you are in a TUC union, push your union to push a TUC to actually invest some money in um, creating, you know, advice centers for migrant workers. I mean, there are two advice centers right now for migrant workers in this field. One is the Worker Support Center in Scotland. 
The other one's called Work Right Center and covers, I guess, the rest of uh, the UK. Uh, support them. So they you could, send them money? I'm guessing no one says no to money, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, actually, I should say that as well. The bureau is a nonprofit where I work, so send us money. Help me keep my yep. job, please. Yep. Actually, you know what? Open Democracy also just put out a fundraiser because they're sacking. Uh, they lost the funding for their Russia team, so they probably need money more urgently than I do. <laughs> So support the Open Democracy Russia team who do great stuff. Okay, well, I think if you if you want to act here and you're not a member of a trade union, uh, we'll put links to some of those uh, those centers that you mentioned, Emiliano, in the episode description. And you know, if you if you, uh, I know that there are union organizers and members and stuff who listen to this. So you know, hmm. take a look guess, here, please. L- please look. And I, I, I guess I guess in a sort of broader philosophical sense, you just have a duty not to sort of accept the the government and the recruiters and the farmers framing of this which is that it has to be like this and it has to be miserable forever until we invent the machine that picks raspberries and then it's going to be fine the problem yeah. is they don't admit uh, that alice like the problem is that they mm. every time you ask them they say everybody loves it mm-hmm. right? it's because no one's really looking because it happens behind hedgerows in kent and no one look what's goes on behind hedgerows in kent mm-hmm. well no because yeah. you might find people dogging <laughs> an errant dogger discovered a bunch of human rights abuses that's it yeah anyway Me and sandra were just trying to have a bit of the other around the back of the zephira and then what should i find mm. but disgusting treatment of migrant workers <laughs> uh, maybe maybe that is the answer too is just to like if what we're doing is raising awareness and i hope so then just to, 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 you know extend that outwards yeah. go bother people about this mm. you know go slap the salad out of someone's hand and be like you piece of shit do you know what it took to like deliver that to you i mean yeah, that's, that's the problem right. work at the bureau because we do investigations about the food chain like across like uh across many countries. Like mm. A colleague of mine just wrote something about how, I have to be careful how I, how I phrase this, but basically security guards at a farm in Kenya were killing people. And so- Oh yeah, I've read about this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a team that does, looks into deforestation, so I can't eat meat or cheese anymore. That's it. Like, this mm. job ruined my life. That's right. All well. you can do is dogging, the only moral activity. That's it. <laughs> the last ethical work. Emiliano, <laughs> breathitarian arc incoming. Um, yeah, anyway, that's right. I want to say, Emiliano, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been uh, delightful to talk to you, but about a harrowing subject. Mm. No problem. Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, and also as a fan, keep up the great work. Oh, oh thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And yes. to... Delightfully chilling portrait of the way things are. <laughs> Indeed. And to our listeners, uh, a few things to note. We will be mm. doing a live show. That's right. It's the live one. Uh, uh, 26th of July in London, London, London. There will be a link in the show notes to buy tickets. If you are a $10 subscriber, you get a £5 discount on the tickets, which means it's £10 instead of £15. Mm-hmm. If you're not a $10 subscriber, I am sorry. <laughs> um, that Those are the terms and conditions. And there's um, also an Edinburgh show. There mm-hmm. is on August 4th, uh, which I am endeavouring to get on sale. <laughs> oh boy, there are a number of people in the chain of command towards getting this show on sale. If I was in charge of it, it would just be on sale already. But I have to make a guy make another guy do a thing, and it's quite difficult. Yeah. Milo is in the guy-bothering industry. Uh, I know, that's mm-hmm. right. Except I'm not bothering him about migrant workers' rights. I'm bothering him about like doing some mouse clicks. Um, and then, of course, you know, you know it. There's the Patreon. Uh, there are more episodes coming. This week... 
The bonus is going to be with our friend Hessa from the Seeking Derangements and Movie Mindset podcast. We will be watching the documentary that they made about Neom. It's feature length. <laughs> so I'm so excited so about that. Yeah. So yeah. We are oh, also Ju- July 18th. Um, me preview London tickets on my website. Usual gear. Thank uh, you. Yep. Finally, a theme song mm-hmm. is "Here We Go" by Ginseng. You can find it on Spotify. So, with all of the end matter now out of the way, it only falls to me to once again thank Emiliano, to once again thank our listeners, my lovely co-hosts, and to say we'll see you in a couple of days in the premium. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 